following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Romans 12 this morning. Now it's easy for us in the West, and even as we think about something like technology and all of the comforts that we have, it's easy for us to forget that for many of our fellow believers around the world, it is a daily constant reality that they're often being actively persecuted or knowing that persecution is right around the corner. There's a group called Open Doors USA and they work on this issue of persecution around the world, and they estimate that 360 million Christians live in countries where persecution is significant. Last year, in 2022, roughly 5,600 Christians were murdered. More than 6,000 were detained or imprisoned, and another 4,000-plus were kidnapped. In addition, more than 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were destroyed. Christians are now the most persecuted people in the world, and it is believed that Christian persecution and genocide is worse now than any other time throughout the history of the church. But all throughout the history of the church, all around different parts of the world at different periods of time, Christians have had to figure out how to live amidst such troubling circumstances. It's certainly not an easy thing. We all have things we would like to do in the face of persecution, but we must consider what the Bible says. How does God instruct us to respond? John Stott tells the story of a young man named Sundar Singh. He was born into a Sikh family, and then he was converted to Christ when he was 15 years old. And of course, he became a Christian and wanted to tell his family immediately. And he says this, Some said I was mad, some that I had dreamed. But when they saw that I was not to be turned, they began to persecute me. But the persecution was nothing compared with the miserable unrest I had when I was without Christ. And it was not difficult for me to endure the troubles and persecution which now began. Sundar was forced to leave his home, but after a while he finally returned to his family and he wrote, at first my father refused to see me or to let me in because by becoming a Christian I had dishonored the family. But after a little while he came out and said, very well, you can stay here tonight, but you must get out early in the morning. Don't show me your face again. I remained silent, and that night he made me sit at a distance so that I might not pollute them or their vessels. And then he brought me food and gave me water to drink by pouring it into my hands from a vessel held high above as one does to an outcast. When I saw this treatment, I could not restrain the tears from flowing from my eyes that my father, who used to love me so much, now hated me as if I was untouchable. In spite of all of this, my heart was filled with inexpressible peace. Now, through the years, Sundar never gave up on his family, praying for their salvation, wishing to have an opportunity to have a loving relationship with them. He never wavered in his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. He continued pursuing them, and years later, he returned home to find that his father had become a Christian. The Lord heard Sundar's prayers and answered them. He could have run away. He could have written his family off completely when they rejected him. But he decided that he wasn't going going to give up on them. And he, he wasn't going to stop praying for them. He could have easily decided to stop praying for them. He could have easily decided it wasn't worth the pain. But he prayed. And he was patient, and he trusted the Lord. And in time, the Lord saved the very man who pushed him out of the house and treated him like someone other than his own son. Now, of course, many stories of persecution don't end with such happy endings. 
but we trust the Lord nevertheless. And we are obligated to look to his word to determine how it is that we are called to respond to the hostility that comes from our being in Christ. There's no doubt that we face some hostility in our circumstances here in the United States from time to time. But it's really minor, very minor, compared to what other Christians have faced throughout history. But perhaps there will be a time coming when it is more prominent and more vicious. Nevertheless, that the, the response that God calls us to never changes. And we will look at that in part this morning in Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, in Romans 12, Paul is writing to Christians about how we should interact with one another as believers in the church and how we are to respond to circumstances around the world. What should our posture be toward other Christians? And how can we use our gifts to optimally benefit the body of Christ? And how can we live faithfully in a sin-sick world? He provides several internal instructions for the church. How to operate amongst ourselves. And in this passage we're looking at this morning, Paul turns his attention to the world around us and directs our our attention to people in general, our neighbors. Not just Christians, not just non-Christians, but people in general. And when we look out and we see the world, how are we to function amongst those who do not know Christ? And how are we to function among our brothers and sisters? How do we function even among those who are openly hostile to God and his people? How should we respond to the brokenness and the evil in the world? What should we do? with those who are in dire circumstances in life? How do we respond with rejoicing and weeping? What should our attitude be and how should our actions align? So let's read together beginning in Romans 12 and verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. And never be wise in your own sight. Now there's no doubt that Paul piles on the imperatives in chapter 12 of Romans. In the first 11 chapters, there are only three direct imperatives. But then you get to chapter 12 and it's like a shotgun blast. In verse 8, there are, excuse me, in eight verses, there are 21 imperatives. And so it's important to remember that first, Paul explains in 11 chapters who we are, what is our nature, and who God is in light of the fact that we are fallen sinners, broken, in need of salvation. And so then he explains the gospel and justification by faith alone. So you have 11 glorious chapters of truth, of doctrine, explaining to us how it is that we have been saved by grace through faith apart from works of the law. And he has to explain all of that because now you get to chapter 12 and you have imperatives, one after the other after the other. And Paul doesn't want to lead us to that place thinking that we could do any of this on our own. That any of this is by our own strength, by our own ability, or that any law-keeping whatsoever would be enough to commend us to God. We need Christ. And so he wants to explain all of that first. And so now we get to chapter 12 and we get to these imperatives and we need to remember how we are saved. And we need to remember that I can't do this in order that God would love or accept me. We need to remember I can do this because God has loved and accepted me as his child. 
Because I am in Christ, I can bless those who persecute me. Because I am in Christ, I can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We need that constant reminder that it is not our willpower, it is not our personal effort, but it is because of Christ. And my standing before the Father is not based on how well I do or how poorly I do these things from day to day, but it is based solely upon the righteousness of Christ who lived and fulfilled the law on our behalf, who died to take the penalty of our sin for all who believe in him and who was raised from the dead to secure everlasting life for his people, breaking the chains of sin and death. Always remember that truth or you will never feel secure in Christ. And you will always doubt whether or not God actually loves you. He does love you if you are in Christ more than you will ever know. And so that being said, what is Paul showing us here in these imperatives? We're going to look at each verse individually. And the first thing we see in verse 14 is that as a Christian, you must die to yourself for the sake of your adversaries. Let's read that again. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. There really aren't many commands in the scripture that are more radical than this one. And of course, it echoes what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. The only way this could ever be possible is if there is a supernatural work of God that is done in our hearts to bring us to a place where we can see God's purposes as greater than our own. That we might truly be able to die to ourselves instead of attempting to live upon our own strength and live upon our own righteousness. Everything in our natural flesh looks at something like persecution and says, it's time to get even. It's time to retaliate. It's time to fight back. If someone hurts us physically, we want to see that they are hurt physically. If someone gossips about us, we want to gossip about them. If someone slanders us, we want to give them a piece of our mind. It's our natural response. But we have to remember what Paul writes previously in chapter 12. In verse 3, he wrote, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. And then in verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Or verse 12, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Now, of course, to the world, the way of the Christian looks weak. But the Christian's aim is much more significant than life in the here and now. Our eyes are set on eternity. So what we do in the here and now must be reflected in the greater, far more important reality of our heavenly turned eyes. Now this certainly doesn't mean that we should just lay down and let everyone walk all over us like a cheap floor mat. This isn't about defending ourselves, especially when things do get physical. We have a right and sometimes we have a responsibility to do that very thing, especially if we're protecting other people and not just ourselves. This also isn't just about any run-of-the-mill kind of violence or gossip or slander. This is specifically related to persecution. That is an evil response of a person because of the fact that you are a Christian. Persecution is not just every terrible thing that happens to you by another person. It is related specifically to your faith in Christ. It seems that American evangelicals need this reminder. It is not persecution. I'm sorry, it's not persecution when someone says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Or when Starbucks cups are red with snowflakes instead of saying Merry Christmas on them. You remember that a few years ago? It was ridiculous. We look dumb to the world when we get worked up about those things. We shouldn't get wrapped up in some of these silly cultural debates and call it persecution. And what does it really degrades 
what is truly going on with our brothers and sisters in places like North Africa and the Middle East and China and North Korea. Real suffering in the name of Christ and we're worked up over the color of a coffee cup. Give me a break. Now I know this was mentioned recently. Many of you are familiar with the story of the five missionaries who went to the Alca Indians in the 1950s in Ecuador. The missionaries, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Ed McCauley, Roger Yundorn, and Nate Saint. All of them were martyred in 1956 after they made contact with the Alcas. Now before they went to meet with the people, these men decided they were going to bring a gun with them. And they had a gun with them while they were being speared to death. However, all they did with that gun was shoot it in the air in the hopes of scaring them away as they were coming for an attack. And they agreed that that's what they would do before they went. No matter what happens, we're not shooting anybody. We'll just try to scare them away. Why? Well, the simple reason they gave was that the natives were not ready for heaven, but they were. They were there with a specific purpose, to bring Christ to the natives of Ecuador. They died bringing Christ to the natives of Ecuador. And what happened? Well, after their death, the families stayed behind. No men, all the missionaries taken out. Their wives carried on the work. And today, there is a large, thriving body of Christ amongst the Alca people in Ecuador. And even some of the children of these men who were martyred were baptized by the very men who killed their fathers. It's an amazing story. And it's a great example of what Paul teaches here. It's one thing to look at this imperative to bless those who persecute us and assume that means don't retaliate or don't do to them what they're doing to you. But that's not really what Paul means here. That's relatively easy and anyone can really do that. That's not, that, there's nothing supernatural about not retaliating. Paul writes that we are to bless them and not curse them. In other words, we must do what we can for their good and for their benefit and for their well-being. Is there anything more grating to the flesh than that? What would that even look like? Think of the Lord Jesus on the cross. What did he pray for those who persecuted him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Could you do that? With the help of the Holy Spirit, you could. This is, this is far more than just determining to not speak ill of your enemies. It means you will pray for them, you will pray for their forgiveness, and you will do all that you can to ensure that they are being blessed. It is one thing not to curse your enemies, but it is another thing entirely to ask God to bless them. Blessing someone is not just the way in which you treat them and include your longings for him. And, and Jesus teaches us that we are to long for good and not a curse. That's what, exactly what Paul expresses here in verse 14. And how do we express our desire or our longing for another before God? Through prayer. And so what should we pray? We should pray that God would be merciful. We should pray that he would be pleased to save them. That he would awaken them from spiritual death and give them new life in Christ. Uh, no doubt, we'd all be very hesitant. You remember when Ananias was hesitant when the Lord sent him to the Apostle Paul after his conversion? Remember in Acts chapter 9, Ananias answered saying, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. I think it's safe to assume that some of the saints would think, Lord, why did you save this man? He has overseen the death of many of the brethren. Why would you ever save him? But surely in time there was rejoicing. 
And when we speak of the Apostle Paul today, we think of the Apostle Paul as we know him as the Apostle evangelizing, planting churches, going on missionary journeys. But in that day, in that moment, in that time, when they heard the name Paul or Saul, what did they think of? They thought of a man who was going around, persecuting the church, overseeing the death of many, many Christians. But we should rejoice, brothers and sisters, in the salvation of any man, woman, or child, no matter who they are and no matter what they have done. It's not easy. That's why I say it has to be supernatural. We want the Lord to save those who are far from him, even those who persecute us. We should pray that the Lord would change their hearts, removing their hatred, And instead, having a love for Christ, love for all mankind, and especially a love for the brethren. So here's the reality of this. If we are going to be treated unjustly and even hurt unjustly for the sake of Christ and his church, and yet we are called to bless our enemies and pray for them and not curse them, then we have to die to ourselves. Listen, this is is not justice, It's not. It's not justice that we would be merciful. But if mercy were justice, then justice wouldn't be justice. And mercy wouldn't be mercy. The call is not for justice. The call is for mercy and showing mercy. Desiring good for one who intends to harm and do evil. It's something that only God can do in us by slaying our self-will, our self-justification, and our self-righteousness. We cannot live upon self and simultaneously strive and desire for the good of another. If someone asks you, what's so radically different about the Christian life than any other? There are several things you could say, but this one should be right near the top of the list. We want to bless those who persecute us. We want the Lord to transform their hearts and we want to be able to call them brothers and sisters. At the root of it all, as Christians, we have to remember that we were once enemies of God, but Christ died for us and showed us mercy. Our sin, our own personal sin against God is far greater than any sin against you. And so you cannot say Christ lived a beautiful life, but blessing those who persecute me is stupid. If you are in Christ, you will be loving and merciful even when it is painful. The second thing Paul shows us in verse 15 is that in the Christian life, we must rejoice in the triumphs and weep in the sorrows of others. Look again at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, over the years of pastoral ministry, this verse has become increasingly important to me as counsel on how to conduct myself amongst the people of God. On a global scale and on a very personal one-on-one level, this is one of the best things that we can understand about what we can do to love other people with a Christ-like love. When it comes to coming alongside other people in their triumphs through life or in the greatest sorrows, all of us want to be able to say the right thing. If we want to express our genuine excitement and joy for others, we, we hope they will know our sincerity and not just assume that we're, we're just hiding jealousy or that we're saying something because we think we're supposed to. And when it comes to someone's sorrows, we want, we want the magic words to dry up their tears and ease their pains. But we all know from our own experience that those words whatever they might, we might think that they would be, they really don't exist. There are no magic words. 
There are no perfectly crafted phrases that are genuine and meaningful to the point that we can give a full expression of what we hope the other person will think or feel or understand. But thankfully, right here, we have the most practical thing we can do, and it is meaningful and it is genuine. When someone rejoices over something praiseworthy, rejoice with them. When someone weeps over something that is truly grievous, weep with them. This is the, this is the purest form and expression of true, genuine love. What Paul instructs here really is a distinctly Christian thing. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. It is the absence of jealousy. It is the absence of pride or wanting to see others disadvantaged for our own gain. Rejoicing with someone else's good. Rejoicing with someone else's prosperity is uniquely Christian. Proverbs 17.5 explains that the ungodly are people who are glad at the calamity of others. But think about that in contrast to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. I rejoice with the joy of all of you. Or he said of himself and his fellow workers, we work with you for your joy. Or 1 Thessalonians 3, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about this a little bit differently, but he gets to the same point. He writes, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so it is, it is distinctively Christian to rejoice at someone else's honor and to rejoice at someone else's joy. And this isn't a superficial thing. This isn't, this isn't a feigned attempt at coming across as though we care, but we really don't. Hey, great. I'm so happy for you. Right, it's, it's void of that jealousy that so easily creeps into our hearts when we see the Lord's blessing on other people. We've all been there. And when the circumstances are detached from you, this may actually be a lot easier. But when someone, you know, who works somewhere else gets a promotion and the Lord blesses them with an opportunity they, they didn't have before, and it, it's not related to us in any way, it's a fairly simple thing to do most of the time. But the real test of pride and the real test of jealousy comes in when it's someone close to us or it's a situation close to us. When our colleague who's been at the same level at work gets promoted over us. Or when a family member gets to do something we really want to do. Or when a friend receives a blessing that we were hoping and praying for our entire lives. This is where we really have to rely on God to give us true, genuine joy and rejoicing for their circumstances. Dying to ourselves, coming alongside them and encouraging them because we are happy for them and thank God for blessing them. Now, of course, this verse cuts the other way as well. The literal rendering of what Paul writes here is that we are called to weep with tears alongside those who are broken, sad, and hurt. These emphases are right. These are the proper response. Oftentimes, the, the first thing we must do with sufferers is come alongside them, acknowledge their pain, express our condolences, and assure them of our love and our prayers. Now, many of us can testify firsthand that when we look back at seasons of intense grief, we don't remember the exact words that people said, but we remember the people who showed up and who sat with us in tears. In 2013, Felicia and I experienced this firsthand. I wrote about it in an article back then with this verse in mind, and I recalled how God's people wept with us. Part of what I wrote was this. In January of 2013, my wife and I were delighted to learn that she was pregnant with our third child. But after the 11-week mark of pregnancy, the heartbeat had stopped. Our baby had died, and we were stunned. 
One of the most striking moments in my pastoral experience thus far was standing in front of the people of the church and saying, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It was in that moment that all the preaching, all the Sunday school lessons, all the private conversations, all the books I had read about the importance of the body of Christ had come to rest in a dramatic and important way. God's people began to weep with us. Through the tears in my eyes, I saw the tears in theirs. Part of the body was hurt, injured, afflicted, and so the rest of the body was likewise burdened with the pain and shared in the grief. Soon after we had made it known, we heard from many other couples who had experienced the same pain and were encouraged by the words and actions full of overwhelming love and support. Never had we ever felt like we needed the church as much as we did in those days. And all of God's promises about the church proved to be gloriously true. We were recipients of the love of God's people who loved us because Christ first loved them. I need the church. I need them to know my life and I need them to know my joys and my sorrows. I can't rightly respond to life without them. I am all the more convinced that without the body of Christ, without the church, there really is no healing. Yes, Jesus is enough, but I cannot love Jesus and despise, shut out, or ignore his bride. Our church loved us well, and I will never forget that when the clouds rolled in, they wept with us, and the truth of God's word was on display. Brothers and sisters, you may never know how much this kind of response means to a person or a family when they are hurting or when they're in need. It doesn't even have to be accompanied by words. Sometimes it just means we come alongside the one who is weeping in times of loss and in heartbreak. And it's then that you truly understand what it means to be intimately woven into something beautiful that Christ has created that Christ has established in his church. This is one of the blessings of being a Christian. And we are responsible for, for doing this, not just with our brothers and sisters, but with the world around us. Believers are to identify with their neighbors in the ups and downs of human life, to be the healing balm in a cold, cold world. Now we have to be careful here. We shouldn't take this as a one size fits all formula to demand a rigid application in every situation where people are sad or distraught. Surely this doesn't mean that the only response to grieving people is to grieve with them. Diving into facts, pursuing objectivity, listening to all sides, these are not invalidated by what Paul writes here. Weep with those who weep does not dictate that the reason for our weeping can never be mistaken. In short, these verses mean something like weep with those who have a good biblical reason to be weeping. When it comes to our rejoicing, with those who rejoice, we should clearly recognize that it is not a command to rejoice when someone else is rejoicing when they got away with cheating their employer or rejoicing when terrorists rejoice in carrying out an attack. Nobody thinks that. Now, sometimes we tend to muddy the waters a little bit when it comes to weeping because we don't want to see people in pain, but the same discernment is necessary instinctively, we know that the first half of the verse means something like, rejoice with those who have a good biblical reason to be rejoicing. An application of this verse that is too rigid is untenable in real life. The point is not to train our emotions to match every emotion we encounter, but rather to be a thoughtful, considerate person who doesn't sing a dirge at a wedding or bring a kazoo to a funeral. A reasonable application of this does not insist on being as sad as the saddest person in our lives, but in being considerate to others, even when it may come to something that isn't a matter of sin, but maybe it's a matter of where two people have different desires for outcomes or are going through different experiences than we are. 
When something good happens in our lives, it's not a time for gloating. It's not a time for chest pounding. We need to remember that others may be struggling with that very outcome. When we weep, we ought not immediately assume others don't love us if they aren't weeping with us because maybe the circumstances don't play out for them with the same exact emotion. There are varied outcomes in all of this that we must remember, realizing that what Paul writes here is a general principle of Christian response, but it doesn't come without discernment in sorting through the facts or whatever the circumstances may be. Now, strictly speaking, Jesus himself did not always weep with those who wept. He certainly didn't feel obligated to match the mood of those who were around him in every circumstance. When the crowds rejoiced on Palm Sunday, Jesus wept. And when the women were mourning for Jesus on his way to the cross, he told them not to weep for him. Jesus was always kind, but he was never sentimental. His tenderness knew no end to those brokenhearted over their sin or looking to him for deliverance from their, from their suffering, but to those grieving the puncturing of their pretensions or those who were indignant because of the truth that he proclaimed, Jesus could be unsparing in speaking what they did not want to hear. But when there was death, when there was true heartbreak, One of the most profound verses in all of Scripture tells us all that we need to know in just two words. Jesus wept. And so we are called to be thoughtful. We are called to be compassionate. We are called to be quick to lend a helping hand or to give a shoulder to cry on. Christians look to enjoy the triumphs with those who rejoice and to comfort those who are sad. Finally, Paul shows us in verse 16 that we must always strive to put an axe to the root of pride. Look again, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, and never be wise in your own sight. The main thrust of what Paul is writing here is to go after our inherent pride and our natural tendency to be legal-hearted. When is it that we don't live peaceably with others? It's generally when we're filled with pride, insisting on our own way. When we think of ourselves as more important or more worthy than others. When we have a standard in our own minds, our flesh tends to want to hold everyone else to that standard. The way they talk, the way they act, the way they dress, the way they do their work, the way they spend their money, and on and on and on. But Paul's concern is that we do all that we can to live at peace with others, to find unity where we can, and to not find ourselves at constant conflict with others. I see Christians sometimes, including pastors, who always seem to be at odds with other people. They are followed by conflict. There's always something going on with them or in their local church. They're odds with people at work. They fight with their neighbors. They fight with customer service people on the phone or at the store and on and on and on. I do fight with the, uh, with the uh, recorded thing that you have to speak to on the phone. But that's not a real person, so that doesn't, that doesn't count. But I see pastors on social media sometimes and I am embarrassed for them and the way they interact with other believers. And when someone dares to challenge their way of communication, they fight even harder. For some, it seems to be sort of this this mark of faithfulness. If they're in conflict, it must mean that they're doing something right because in their mind, People who are not in Christ hate God and so they will hate us and so conflict is just the norm. But could it be possible that they've ignored the Bible's command to strive to live at peace with others? 
Instead, maybe it's just that they're a jerk and their legal heart keeps them from having good functional relationships with those they are actually thinking less of than they do themselves and those they're closest to. This is what a legal heart does, right? It convinces itself on its rightness and it elevates the person to a place above others. But here, what is, what is Paul doing? He's warning against the pride that comes in the things that we do and the people we interact with. He writes, do not be haughty. In other words, don't be high-minded, but associate with the lowly. Or you could say, be carried away with the lowly things or the lowly tasks or the lowly people. Brothers and sisters, there is nobody in this world that you should elevate yourself over. Have you ever taken a job with a bad boss who thought things were beneath them that they would never think to do? taking out the trash or washing the dishes. There's no way they would ever touch that. Years ago, I worked for a woman who made me bring her car to the car wash and fill it with gas because she said that as a lawyer, it was beneath her for people in the community to see her doing those things in public. Filling your car with gas, say it ain't so. Who's ever done that before? She sent her daughter to do all of her shopping and everyone in the office was tasked with something that she needed to be done because it was all beneath her. But for Christians, Paul instructs the exact opposite. Change the diapers, run the errands, sweep the floor, wash the dish, mow the grass, clean the toilet. You're not better than any of these things. In fact, you're far worse. And as Christians, we shouldn't see ourselves who who ever get to look at anything that needs to be done and think it too menial or below us. Think of what Paul writes about Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Let the mind of you, let the mind be in you that which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and was carried away with the lowly and the simple role of a servant, even to the point of death. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So how would you ever think yourself higher than anything or anyone? To be a Christian is to become lowly dependent on Christ and imitating Christ. What's really interesting about Paul's phrase here is that he's not just telling us to associate with the lowly, but to be drawn in and to be moved and to be affected. Something happens inside of us that sways us and carries us. This is what it means to be a Christian. We don't just make new choices. We are becoming more and more Christ-like from the inside out. And when we have that mindset, we begin to see that we think less and less about how mighty and how wonderful we are, and we start to see people more as God intends, as people with souls and hopes and dreams and desires just like us. We see them as people who need love and others to rejoice when they rejoice and to weep when they weep. I'm always heartbroken to see how people often treat those who are homeless. I get it. I, I, don't, I don't think it's wise giving them money when they ask for it on the street corner, but I also realize from spending a lot of time speaking with homeless people that many of them are very alone. And many of them have a lot of problems in their lives beyond homelessness that led to that place. And very rarely do they think they are a person that is loved or cared about by anyone else. Remember, brothers and sisters, they're your neighbors too. None of us are as wise as we think we are None of us have anything worth holding over other people or a standard that we assume that they should live up to. Christ is our standard and every single one of us falls short of that. The reality is that we are all in that together. 
As fallen people, as broken people with messed up lives, with disoriented thinking, with disoriented desires, and with a minute-by-minute need of the grace and mercy of God. And so, friend, maybe you're here this morning and you've been hurt by Christians. Maybe you've been hurt by people close to you. Maybe you've been wrongly judged or treated poorly or looked down upon by people who should have loved you instead. But I want to tell you that there aren't any Christians who are better than you. And there certainly aren't any Christians who are perfect. We are standing in the same place in terms of our need. We need Christ. You need Christ. But the answer is not to reject Christ because sometimes Christians do what humans do and treat you wrongly or because they don't respond to you in certain circumstances in the way that they should. People will always fail you. It's the sad reality of being a fallen people in a fallen world. But the, the, the reality is that our tendency is to make other people like our God. And people make terrible gods because they always will fail you. And while we must always strive to love and forgive one another and be gracious and charitable and hope and believe the best of one another, sometimes relationships can just be difficult. But there is one who will never fail you, who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, and who will always rejoice when you rejoice and will weep when you weep, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of what he did so that you might have everlasting life. He didn't think of himself as more highly than you. He gave himself as a ransom. He came and lived a life without a house, without a home. He came and lived a life as a lowly servant. I came not to be served, but to serve. He came and subjected himself to all the trials of this world, to all the temptations of this world and the devil. He came and he lived to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill. Not because he had to, He was perfectly content as he sat at the right hand of the Father, as he has for all eternity. He didn't need to do that. We needed him to do that. And he did it. And he lived that perfect life and then he was wrongly accused and dragged to his death to be nailed on a wicked, terrible cross for crimes that he did not commit, to receive on himself the full weight of the penalty of our sin in the wrath of God so that we need not bear that penalty. To rescue us from the wrath of God, to rescue us from an eternity in hell, to rescue us from the consequences of our sin, to rescue us from our great enemy, death. And he did that, not because he needed to for himself, but for us. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the Lord Jesus Christ that we celebrate, that we look to, not just as our example, and not just as our friend, but as our Savior. And friend, if you do not know Christ, this very one to whom I have spoken, he can save you. By faith, if you look to him and put your trust in him, put all of your hope in him, put all that you have in this life upon him. And as you come to him in humility, he will not cast you out. He will not push you away. He will not reject you and say you are too lowly. You are too broken. You are too stained. You are too sinful. Not one exists. Come to him, all who are weary and heavy laden. Come to him, all ye sinners. Come, without money, come and buy. Eat of the bread of life, drink of the water of life. Come to him and he will save you.
and he will work this work in your heart that you too can bless those who persecute you. That you might rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That you might have the work of the Holy Spirit. That you would not be haughty, but you would associate with the lowly. That you would be able to live at harmony with one another and to not be wise in your own eyes. And so brothers and sisters, let us hear the call of the scriptures to die to ourselves and let us always strive to live for the advantage of others. It is our great and high calling as the people of God to the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so very thankful as we are reminded this morning of what Christ did that we might be the people you call us to be. We're so very thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And Lord, we acknowledge before you that all of these things we've discussed this morning, we're never gonna do them perfectly in this life. We are gonna have times when we act selfishly, when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought, when we act out of self-righteousness and pride when we do not rejoice with those who rejoice because maybe we have jealousy in our hearts, when we do not weep with those who weep because we simply do not see the point. But Lord, we ask that you help us, that you help us to respond rightly to the circumstances of this world with a genuine heart and a genuine desire to come alongside our brothers and sisters, knowing that in so doing, we are loving them well. We are loving them as ourselves. We are doing to them what we would want done to us. And Lord, in so doing, that we're strengthening the church and we are giving a visible representation to the world of what this work of God in our lives has done, that we might be the faithful and true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that you bless us, that we might fulfill your calling in our lives as your people. And we ask you to do it all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.